Welcome to Book Pile Banter. This is Amberly with Sarah and Kim, and this is a starting of a new segment that we're doing, which is called Book Topics. The idea behind these is that we will be discussing topics that apply to the book community. Uh, and we are starting today with the history of LGBTQ plus publishing since it is Pride Month. Um, just as a, well, first off, this is the first time we're doing this, so bear with us. It might be a little hiccupy. But I do also want to start the episode just with kind of a little disclaimer. And that disclaimer is that first and foremost, I want to remind the listener that this episode is a brief introduction to LGBTQ plus publishing. It is not an all-knowing and may get bits of information incorrect. However, the research was conducted by myself, who does have a master's in library and information science. So basically, I know how to find stuff. And who also identifies as part of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, so you can take what I say with a grain of salt and trust that I am gathering the information with the intent of accurate and honest representation for the community as a whole. So how I'd like to start this is kind of ask my co-participants here, Sarah and Kim, what they know about LGBTQ publishing, if they know anything. So Kim. I, oh, sorry. You were prompting me to speak. Um, I, I don't, I don't know anything about the history of LGBTQ publishing. So okay, I, I uh, with no knowledge. Okay, what about you, Sarah? Pretty much same as Kim. <laughs> you sound so excited about this. <laughs> I can tell. Well, I'm I have... pretty much the same amount as Kim, so I'm super excited to hear what you have to say. Is that better? <laughs> Yes, particularly as you both are staring down at your phones. I'm not looking your... down at my phone. Oh, what are you looking down at then? I've got empty hands now. Oh, yeah. You both have such guilty looks on your faces. Okay. It's just my face. I do not disagree. <laughs> okay, so I am just going to get my screen here positioned so I can actually see you guys as I talk to assess your boredom levels. Oh, I can't see Kim. That's okay. Okay, so I'm starting with our first section. Oh, bye, Kim. She just fell out of the... <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you couldn't see me, so I figured I could leave. Yeah. Um. So our first section here is I'm going to give kind of an overview of history. And this history kind of has two parts. I'm going to be doing kind of broad strokes for before the 1930s. And then I'm going to be doing a bit more of a decade breakdown from about the 1930s through to the early 2000s. So first off, the earliest known depictions in the Western world of same-sex relationships is believed to be the Iliad, which has the relationship of Achilles and Patrocles. And then, of course, many Greek and Roman literature also had intersex individuals as well as same-sex relationships that modern historians now believe indicate their acceptance of same-sex relationships back in ancient Greek and ancient Roman times. Um, but though this can always, like I said, be taken with a grain of salt because that perspective does change as modern historians' perspectives on these things change. However, uh, we've used this term before and a recent development is that male lover lover male lover male relationships are now actually being used with the broad term of Achillean uh, just to make sure that it's inclusive for all male identifying and non-binary identifying romances that lean masculine. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay then on the flip side we have Sappho who is also from 
I did not write this down. I know she's from like, I think Rome. And she wrote lyrical poems that centered around female sexuality and love. And it has led to the rise of lesbian literature being known as sapphic. So we have Achillean and then we have sapphic. Sapphic being all female identifying or non-binary identifying romances that lean feminine. Then we jump ahead to the Renaissance. And there we have our iconic William Shakespeare who ha work has been examined for how it plays with genders, you know, the cross-dressing, the use of all male actors in the performances, and the fact that some of his sonnets could be viewed as him having either a male or female lover, depending on the word choice on the particular sonnet. That being, the best example is the fair use sequence, with Sonnet 20 being the most iconic. So, which I, I'm assuming both of you learned about Shakespeare at some point. I don't know if you ever paid attention to gender roles in Shakespeare at all, though. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and then it is believed that during the 18th century that women were encouraged to have same-sex relationships before marriage. Um, and this is due to the fact of, of literary works such as the Diaries of Anne Lister and the poetry of Catherine Phillips, which indicates that women were encouraged to only have uh, same-sex relationships before marriage in order to save themselves, I guess. I don't know. Then we jump forward to the 19th century, which probably has the most gay iconic writer of all time. Can either of you guess who I'm about to talk about? What time period is this? 19th century. So 1800s? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that far back. I, I, no, I, I don't know who you referring to i'll probably go oh well yeah yeah it's like the oh so troublesome oscar wilde okay oh yeah <laughs> so most people learn about oscar wilde and you know know about him we'll be coming into some of the persecutions he faced later on um along with him we also have walt women and then for our girls we have emily dickinson and virginia wolf who uh kind of led the way for more vocal writing that we know today in terms of one's identity and sexual partnerships then finally we have in the 19th century more authors pushing the envelope of what is written and seeing more commercial success during that time with writing before then it wasn't so much commercial success so that is all all the history leading up to that point um we then have an, the history from the 1930s on and i do want to note that i got a lot of this information from the author michael navi and i apologize if i said that wrong he did a three-part essay that is talking about short selective and incomplete history of lgbtq publishing so per him the 1930s to 1970s tended to show male gay characters as an awakening into their sexuality exploring hopeless but passionate love before having a bitter end it often reflected the struggle that men and women faced at the time. However, many authors did attempt to infuse a sense of hope into the overall history for those within the community reading it. So again, we're talking um, kind of more independently style publishing. It's not necessarily massive commercial things between the 1930s to 1970s. However, interestingly enough, in the 1950s and 1960s, there was an emergence of lesbian pulp fiction. Have either of you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, I have. 
that were regularly found as paperbacks at the local drugstore. Interesting, what led to this surge is the availability of um, availability after World War II and the idea of paperback books, which were created with the idea of having a pocket-sized prints of classics, though a newsstand publisher decided to create a new line of paperbacks. So, and this is not the previously mentioned lesbian pulp, to be clear, like this, this newsstand didn't just suddenly decide to do specifically lesbian pulp. He did paperbacks. Uh, paperbacks, which uh, were where sensational genres were published and considered the lowest level of literature, which is still reflected in the fact that most romance novels today are still primarily published as paperbacks. It's not considered like high tier, high quality um, hardback material. Although that is starting to change because we do have a lot of specialty book clubs that are giving options for hardcovers for, uh, I think, Kim is yawning. <laughs> okay, do I you really... want Kim to give a brief his brief history of her last uh twenty three days? No. <laughs> I flew for four I flew for fourteen hours. I went to a concert and I just got my eyelashes done. I was sound asleep not even thirty minutes ago. So I'm I'm trying to wake up. I will engage. I apologize. I no, no, no. It's okay. I just I feel like I'm giving a presentation because uh, you I guys know. haven't had a lot I mean, of you kind of are. <laughs> and I'm like, am I talking too fast? Am I not pacing? Like no. I'm just making sure my pace is good. And then I just see Kim yawn, and I'm like, ah, don't internalize that sense of dread. So <laughs> what I'm hearing is if we just yawn periodically for no reason, it'll fuck with you. It will. Yes. Um, thank you thank I you apologize. guys <laughs> or will cause you to sympathy on okay so yeah. where okay i was talking about hardbacks uh um, paperbacks but no i was talking about romances she would now, transition towards paperbacks yeah yeah the gotcha. that, that that they started actually publishing we are currently doing hardbacks and, yeah yeah um and the book clubs see however yeah However, it should be noted that the trope of those earlier lesbian pulps was that the story had to end in either insanity or tragedy. <laughs> That's fun. Okay. I mean that sarcastically. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, this was the 1950s and the 1960s, and like we could barely handle female sexuality as it was, let alone female female sexuality. So like I know I'm just imagining the authors being like, so of course this drove them to madness. There, uh, I don't know why this is the 60s. That I think this is now. We can't handle female sexuality at all now. So, I, I was uh, talking more about the, you know, sending them to the asylum means of handling I know, it. I know. Um, also now to do it, but then you know, tell them they're crazy. Now I want that on a shirt. <laughs> It drove them to insanity. Too much pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> then, uh, in the 1970s, at least for the United States, is when homosexuality was no longer classified as a mental illness. And this is over the decade of the 1970s. So it, it wasn't like it switched over immediately. However, this transitional period did not instantly mean LGBTQ plus literature would become more mainstream because they were transitioning. There is then the 1980s and the 1990s, which would be considered the spark 
of the golden age of gay and lesbian publishing. But it did come at a cost. The significant loss of an entire generation of gay men due to AIDS. Uh, this led to many paths that the LGBTQ community plus could and would take when it came to publishing. Um, but there is also a certain level of recognizing that an entire generation of male potential writers in that community just weren't there. It also allowed... Uh, it also caused a rise in awareness of the LGBTQ community, and with that grew an interest in market for the stories of that community. And the American Booksellers Association, stupid pop-up, there we go, uh, was Expo was where more queer titles were being found. Because again, we gotta keep in mind, this is before, you know, Amazon and all that kind of stuff, so people actually had to get together and, like, share information in order to disperse it. As for lesbian literature, uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, small lesbian presses were the key way that their voices were found and expressed during this time, uh, since the AIDS epidemic did not affect them in the same numbers as it was affecting men at the time. It is key to note that by 1993 and 1995, bigger publishers were putting less traction into LGBTQ plus literature because it didn't meet the economic success they desired out of it. Gay bookstores also began to struggle as bigger chain stores like Barnes & Noble and Amazon drove them out of business, eliminating the community center effect that many bookstores relied on to stay in business. So from there, history becomes much more complicated in a capacity that is perhaps too nuanced to kind of cover in this one episode. However, LGBTQ plus titles continue to grow and expand just as the community does to include bisexual, trans, pansexual, arrow, ace, non-binary, and so many other facets of these smaller communities that have, and perhaps that's not always to everyone's benefit, collected together to increase their voices. So uh, various facets of the community continue to grow in books depending on what is the topic of discussion year by year when we hit anywhere from 1995 going forward. So that is the broadest strokes of the history. Do you guys have any questions? Not particularly. Was it interesting to learn in yes, it like was. 10 minutes? <laughs> Good. Yeah, as an overview. Yeah, yeah. Very broad overview. Okay. I mean, granted, if you had gone deeper, I probably would have, my brain would have wandered off somewhere else. So yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely, I want to get us into more of, like, the discussions of, like, effects and problems that the community faces when it comes to the publishing, not so much lecturing at you guys for an extended period of time. So, our next topic is persecution. And, you know, as many people who are part of the community know, this has been a slow path towards acceptance that is ongoing. So, the first example I have is going back to Sappho. Sappho's works were burned during the rules of the 14th century Archbishop Gregory of Nazanus, probably said that wrong, and then in the 11th century by Pope Gregory VII for their portrayals of lesbianism. So well after Sappho was published, um, she faced, like she was dead, but her work faced opposition because of the topics. Like religious leaders felt the need to attack it. <laughs> Typical. It's, yeah. That's what I thought. Not surprising. Um, interestingly enough, when Walt Whitman wrote poetry with homosexual themes, no one would publish them. So he decided. I didn't to even sell know he did. He did. Like, I didn't either until I was looking this up. I like, 
I was like, I did not know that Walt Whitman was a gay icon, but apparently he is. This is, yeah, it's like, we learned about him in high school and like the nature poems or whatever. That's all I know associated with him. And so I'm like, man, I feel like a major important element of who this person is, is just erased from learning. She's just like, yeah. we're just not going to address that. Go figure. But I was going to say, that's yeah. pretty, pretty freaking typical in American education. So, yeah. But Especially now. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, he did decide to self publish them and in the process lost his government job with the Department of Interiors when the Secretary of Interiors learned he was the one to have written them. I think I knew that. That he lost his job? Yeah. Yeah, so it's because he wrote gay poetry and self-published. I think he did use a pseudonym to self-publish them. So, like, he backed it. Um, but his boss figured out it was him and was angry. So Dedicated boss, man. Right? Okay. But as we all know, when those things happen, it's because they're looking at the thing that they're 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 not i'm doing this in not interested quotes. yeah not not supposed to be looking at it's like dude you just outed yourself as being closeted gay murphy i, I need you know, to move sir no 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 no, no. murphy you gotta go that way no you're gonna claw me man come on this is it you can come cuddle denaries she won't like it but okay <laughs> so then we have of course the probably best known gay author Oscar Wilde. I almost said Oscar Isaac. <laughs> like, well, this is news to me. <laughs> You're like, where do I read that? I want to know what's going on in that man's head. Um, <laughs> no, Oscar Wilde. So, Oscar Wilde faced two years in jail when it was discovered that he was having a relationship with a man, and then became exiled when he would not stop having those relationships. So that's pretty general news that most people know. Um, Of course, he also had very, very, very interesting uh, plays about society where if you read them closely, like men and women don't truly want to interact with each other per his observing society. Uh, It's quite funny. Like it's just a necessity to have. Um, and like he was known for writing down conversations that he heard to then use. So I'm assuming you guys knew that fact, but just in case nobody else did, those are the facts about him. I mean, I would like to note that I don't believe I ever learned anything about Oscar Wilde in school and thus only know of him from posts I've seen referencing this particularly gay author or author who just writes gay stuff, but I don't know anything that he's written or anything about him. So that's my place. Okay. 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 Well, so he has his society plays, um, which were like the talk of the town before it was known that he was gay. Like they were the funniest shit out there at the time Um, because he had just like, a quirky observations and everyone who who watched it and was of high society had heard these conversations going on so they knew kind of who he was writing about then on top of that he has the picture of dorian gray 
which is probably one of the best known. He wrote that? Yeah. Yes, he did. Okay. Because I've heard, I've not read it, but I've heard of it, obviously. Um, oh, man. If you want but... unrequited men pining after each other. I don't. Picture Unrequited is not one of my tropes that I enjoy. <laughs> well, it's really okay. good. Picture of Dorian Gray is beautiful. It's, it is. It's a great story. It's also a little bit, um, which Amber will argue with me about this, but it's a little bit, um, What? what's the type of story you like? Um, a little bit supernatural. I can't think of what no, I No, 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 it totally is. It totally is. It does. What's uh, but what's the term? Uh, uncanny. It's a little bit. Un uncanny. Oh, uncanny. it's a little. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally uncanny. Um, yeah. it has a slight magical realism going on with it. I mean, the entire premise is this young man. Yeah, that's not the painting wanna... thing in the attic. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. doesn't want to lose his beauty, so he like sells a portion of his soul in order to always remain beautiful, but is an absolutely atrociously eternal human being in the process and does awful awful things meanwhile the story is from the perspective of this painter who painted him who is just madly in love with him madly in love with him as he's watching this guy just run around and do atrocious relationships with women and like just drop him at the, the drop of a hat as he is just sitting there pining for him um and then there's this lord who also has like this pining desire to be with dorian so it, it's just like i don't know it's amazing it's, it's a, a slower read um because i mean it's literature so it's a little bit of a slower read but it's amazing um and then oscar wilde also has some poetry that he wrote after his experience in prison um kind of processing that experience so yeah and then like the only reason why he got found out is because he was in this romance with this young man whose father was like a lord in parliament i believe and the dad found out and was so angry that he wanted to get Oscar Wilde out of his son's life because his son could not be a gay man. It was illegal in Britain at the time. So that's why he got persecuted when most people, like, depending on who you knew, you could kind of get it slid under the rug. But because he was, like, after this younger man and they were in a serious relationship, his, the younger man's father got him sent to prison and then got him exiled um when he would not stop having romantic relationships with men so yeah there you go oscar wilde the dandy trendsetter of his time <laughs> <laughs> okay and then of course we have the fact that oh and then we have to this day you know trans authors and especially trans authors of color are still struggling to have their books be more mainstream with only the last half a decade seeing increasing representation in commercial and non-self-publishing spheres of writing. Um, however, it still continues to be like the hardest book to publish is trans person of color. Um, which is weird because like just last week we were reading Aiden Thomas and he is trans and a person of color and he writes trans and a person of color as his main story um but that success that he experienced is very very rare and niche currently um most trans books that are really well known because i was trying to think of other ones tend to be white trans you know uh or white non-binary you know casey mcquinston um andrew white 
uh, I can't remember the name, but we read him last Halloween. Um, it's it's primarily white trans people when trans is published. Felix Ever After. Yes, that's a rarer one. Um, yeah, and I think that is a tra- and I is the author trans. That's a d- black queer trans and uses they them and he him pronouns. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That one's a little bit rare. However, that does get me down into our statistics in just a moment. So. <laughs> We then have um, kind of the biggest thing that continues to be like is the ongoing problem right now, which is that books that represent LGBTQ plus community are continuing to see bans and protests across the United States. In fact, I have an example. Only last week, an elementary school was broken into and a pride flag was burned before a pride assembly was planned to take place. In response, I was impressed by this. In response, the school board president, Jackie Goldberg, countered by sharing the book, The Great Big Book of Families, at a board meeting uh, for the public and sharing her own experience raising a son with two mothers and how happy she is to see that it is a little bit easier for her grandchildren than it was for her son. The school board unanimously backed her on increasing awareness of the LGBTQ plus community for the nation's second largest school district. Um, so there's a little bit of positivity there, although obviously we continue to see banning. Um, yes. So I was distracted. Did we say where the school district was? It is in Los Angeles. Okay, well, that puts a little perspective on it. So Yeah. It's still but- depressing that they someone broke in and burned a pride flag. Yeah. Yeah. California uh, runs a weird line. It does. It does. Um, I mean, even my own, the library that I work at, we had someone come in and we have, I think it's called the inclusivity flag or the progress flag, where it has the triangle, it has the rainbow, but it also includes people of color in the representation. And we had a person come in and protest, like, like not protest, but like demand that it be removed taken down down. and so we have to remove it at the uh end of the month we can't have the flag up okay i'm gonna go in and protest that i want it up what why can't you have it up that's ridiculous i don't know i i honestly it's not determined by me wait who determines it who do we complain to yeah i'm not i (laughs) You could tell us offline. I know. I will tell you offline because I work there. Yeah, we don't want to tie this into into you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't want to cause problems. I was just showing. This is why we should have fake names. But no, (laughs) you wanted to use the real names. So I would totally have fucked that up in the first. (laughs) Episode. Um, So yeah, I mean, yeah, it was not a no go. To be fair, I want to be clear. Are youth librarian? She is perfectly fine with the flag up. In fact, she wanted to figure out how to make the space a better display area because it currently is just like over the top of um, our books that we process to go back on the shelves. And our city librarian, you know, she wrote up a reason like she was planning on, you know, arguing against it. It it was just deemed by the higher ups that it can only be up during Pride Month. And it's really weird because it's not it's it's a pride flag but it's not actually like the pride flag it's um let's see here i think it's the inclusivity flag give me just a second the progress yeah it's the progress flag but and 
and what's weird is this person wasn't wasn't it wasn't because it was in the children's section so it's not like we could have just moved it downstairs and it was you know how dare you have us in the children's section they felt that the only flag that should be displayed in the library is the flag of the united states so well, that's what they claim yeah, yeah. so uh unfortunately and we had another we don't know if it's the same person or not we had another person on at another branch protest or countered the flag being up um so unfortunately like this continues to be an issue in public libraries it's an issue in school spaces that we aren't allowed to have these kinds of displays and like struggle to make these members of the community feel welcome into the spaces more than just in pride month so and then well, on yeah, top of you, that you would feel really welcome knowing that your a flag representing you and was insistent on being removed yeah um and you know it it's you know it comes it it goes well beyond just like even books even like a lot of libraries are trying to figure out how to make more inclusive bathrooms so a lot of libraries now are doing single stall bathrooms instead of like multi-stall bathrooms in order for it to be a single use bathroom and they can allow any gender into there without concern um we have in our library we have technically a a girl's bathroom though upstairs i kind of i refer to it as more the family bathroom because it has two stalls in it a handicapped stall and a single stall um, and we have keys that allow people access into the bathrooms. Um, and then we have our all gender bathroom, which used to be the boys bathroom, but it's a single stall with a urinal. Um, so I tend to, depending on who asks for a key, if it's a single individual, I'll send them to the all gender bathroom. If it's a family group, I try to save the key. That's the multi stalls so that they can easily get all kids in and out at the same time. Um, and then a lot of libraries have just single stalls or family stall bathrooms so that they don't have to deal with issues as to who uses what bathroom. And then downstairs we have two single stall bathrooms. So it's just first come first serve gets whichever key they get. So, yeah. So the bathroom thing is such a, it, it, okay. Hmm. Control my, my verbiage. Um, it's such a ridiculous thing if you look at it from a, I'll say a world point of view, mm -hmm. you go into a bathroom in Europe, the stalls are floor to ceiling. Yeah. Um, a restaurant I was in yesterday and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say what restaurant it is. I don't think it matters, but they have an all gender bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so you, you walk into this and there are like, we'll say six stalls. Yeah. And there are a couple that are marked as being male or female, but they're all in the same space, but they yeah. go floor to ceiling. Nobody's yeah. getting into the stall with yeah. you. There's no urinals. So if you're a man, you're going to go into the stall and use it like you do at home because you're not allowed to have urinals in your house. Actually, yeah. I, I can counter that because my cousin had a urinal in her house. But, <laughs> um, but it, it, the, the need for this to be an issue is, is, to me, so stupid. Why do we need it all separated out? It's just a place to go to the bathroom. Well, and, 
And I recently read, apparently Japan has taken this a step further. So they have now in their public spaces all Western bathrooms because it's just accessibility. I was there recently, they do. Yeah. And there are some bathrooms that play like white noise or water sounds. And I was the one that told... Did you no, read no, no. it someplace? I, I, I read it I someplace, was, yeah. No, 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 you didn't tell me about this. Fabulous thing on the planet. You go into your stall and there's there's water playing. And then if you're there for a longer period of time, the volume, the volume increases, increases. Because <laughs> it's assumed that you've been there for a little while that you might be doing something more than just urinating. And so the volume increases. But they're bri- their bathrooms are brilliant anyway because they have a little a little dispenser thing where you take a little bit of toilet paper and you and then you wipe down the seat and yeah. it cleans the seat before you sit down and then you also can do the whole uh clean your bum thing at the end if you want to yeah but yes they have they have noise in the in the bathroom it's phenomenal i love yeah. love japanese bathrooms. <laughs> anyway so yeah i i know i had read that separately you hadn't told me about that i did come uh, across that separately um i miss uh, japanese bathrooms when i come home <laughs> It's it's really weird uh, because I am uh, working libraries. Bathroom news <laughs> makes its way to me pretty regularly. I could not tell you why, other than it's just oddly enough an important thing about libraries is we spend a significant amount of time, like being aware of the bathrooms, tracking the bathrooms, and it's like we're not we're just making sure people aren't doing like illicit drugs in them and stuff, making sure they're staying clean, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> Moving on. So these are, you know, iconic persecutions that people have been facing. And now I'm going to give some statistics, which is where where LGBTQ plus books are most predominantly found. And right now, YA LGBTQ plus literature is leading the charge on most titles published per year. In 2014, the number was only 47 titles by mainstream publishers, which we will be discussing who the mainstream publishers are at a different episode. That then rose to 79 titles in 2016 for the Hatchet Book Group. I couldn't find anything that was like more up to date. I think that's just because things got disrupted and it just hasn't been updated as easily. Um, interestingly enough, when it comes to LGBTQ plus characters... They are usually found in contemporary novels, making up about 50%. And then science fiction and fantasy is a 22%. But, and I I can attest to this, because when I help make the pride displays in June, and I'm looking for, like, books that people might be looking for, I have the significant problem of most titles are young adult. They're in our young adult section. I will say this year we did see an increase. We have increased the number of LGBTQ plus fiction books in our selection for adults because last month I was having, or last year, I was having such a hard time finding like titles that people would be requesting and reading currently. This month I've, I've had a full display um, and I have backup books for it. And it's not just tragedy representation it's you know it's not historical fiction that's sad it's you know romances science fiction fantasy all kind of genres um i think there are even some thrillers 
So yeah, that's that's where currently is leading the charge. And that's not surprising. Young adult books tend to actually lead the charge when it comes to diversity and diversity trends. Um, just because demand is there with that age group and continues to be there with that age group. Okay, we're almost done. <laughs> we're We're almost there and we can like discuss anything else you guys want to discuss in this episode or it'll be a short episode which is perfectly fine so modern day so today the biggest struggle that lgbtq plus books face now is the banning and shaming of the literature by the world as a whole this can lead to particularly with young individuals the feeling ashamed of their identity struggling with their self-worth and even considering suicide there's also a struggle over who has the right to write particular stories and when certain things become a fetishization rather than an accurate representation within the community, which is are topics we've discussed, um, you know, should women be writing the Killian literature? Do they have, you know, when does it stop being them writing it as a representation and actually more of a fetishization? I would say the same with the verse, but there aren't too many men writing sapphic literature and reading it for the sake of having sapphic literature. But there's also, you know, who has the right to write trans stories? Who has the right to write anything? Um, Arrow, Ace, you know, who has the right to write these things? Uh, plus, there are severely marginalized portions of the community when it comes to, or still marginally, ma massively marginalized portions, when it comes to person of color, trans, and bisexual, and the arrow a spectrum being depicted in the writing to name just a few kind of like typical individuals um at the same time social media is acting as a powerful force to drive lgbtq plus books into the mainstream and looked into for adapting into other forms of media such as red white and royal blue being turned into a movie on amazon prime that is something that probably five years ago would not have been a likely thing or even in the efforts in movies like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, depicting the trans flag throughout the spaces that Gwen Stacy occupies, such as her room and on her father's police uniform. So, why'd you just give me that face, Sarah? Your eyes got really big. They didn't. <laughs> I'm really positive they increased. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah, so that's modern day. Is, is We're seeing still struggles... There's a lot of discussion as to who has the right to write certain things and depict certain things. But at the same time, we are seeing it become more and more mainstream, which I think is really important. Um, so, yeah, I talked really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any comments you want to make? Did you learn anything new today? I learned that Oscar Wilde wrote a picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> It's like, I knew about that book. I just didn't know who the author was, but I'd also heard about Oscar Wilde, didn't know what he wrote. So now those two have meshed yep. in my brain. Okay. They come together. Okay. Uh, anything else you guys learned, found interesting? Anything you guys want to discuss more? I think uh, the only thing that came to, not the only thing, but the only thing that came to my mind at, at the end was you were like, when you were discussing who gets to write what in, mm -hmm. in that. I think will see that given time as um people learn representation better and how to do it without stereotyping um and without um exaggerating 
behaviors, which I know is stereotyping, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think we'll find that people can start writing um, outside just what is their their knowledge, their bubble, their reality. And, and it has to happen. Are part of that community when they get more say, more value in them writing it, I think is kind of the key thing too. Yeah. Is... But, but it has to happen because if mm-hmm. one person writes a book and you want representation within that book you can't just write those that are you that's not how society is composed i really don't like this whole concept of only this kind of person can write this kind of book it's like that's people have been writing stories not necessarily about themselves for like all of history like men men authors write women characters maybe not well certainly not well all the time i read one recently but like it's like there's not great literature out there and then there's good literature and it's like more representation the better yeah and they will learn learn. yeah um but but i will also say that and i'm gonna just i'm gonna force this through the learning isn't through eliminating if somebody writes something that's problematic we don't eliminate them they have well, to be these days social media does and and that's what i'm saying it need that needs kind of end and and i'm i'm not completely against this whole cancel culture and i'm doing that with air quotes again um thing i i think if somebody does something you know egregious and and violent and yeah you mean she maybe, shall not be named. or with intentional like malice right like they are intentionally and, well and as writing Amber it said, to be hateful she who, yeah she who shall not be oh named. yeah that bitch yeah um and in case anybody's wondering because i'll name her jk rowling um i just didn't want to yeah i know but (laughs) so you know it's gonna shift everything runs on a pendulum everything runs on a pendulum so right now you know things are pretty aggressive it i think it's getting lighter it i think so the pendulum swinging but what i've seen recently that a lot of like authors and writers on author talk for lack of better i know sarah roll your eyes but this is where i'm seeing the information um what a lot of them are discussing in terms of like kind of helping each other and where a lot of of these smaller community book talkers so those who represent those communities they're not against themselves being in books um obviously making sure that who's writing about them has accurate information actually knows people of that community and stuff the big thing they're they're now saying is like for example i as a white woman should not be writing a main black character should i have black characters in my book yes is it my place to write a but black if you did character that, story would be like why are you sidelining them shouldn't don't they deserve they can to be still the main be, character they can still like be people bitch prominent. about anything I know. I, I'm saying that the, currently the discussion is they shouldn't be like the main character. They should still be big characters, massive main, you know, you know, they can be love interests. They can still be various portions of the story that it's just maybe isn't my right to write a black character story, which I, I can understand. I don't know the nuances. Um, I, you know, 
would I write a story where maybe the the love is interest is trans? Yes. Um, I have a couple of that that I've been writing that that is the case. But I wouldn't write knowing what a trans character's experience is like. There is some, and and I think another thing that's coming up a lot is there are so, a little bit more given particular genres. So like science fiction, fantasy. Um, there's that recognition that as particularly as TV shows do this more and more, that we can have these characters being in the story and being main characters because they're the real life historical norm or historical knowledge doesn't have to be carried over into a fantasy or science fiction book. You don't have to give them those traumas because you're creating a false world. And so there's a little bit more give there. However, at the same time, there are people who are rightly like, oh my god. I mean, the prime example is we recently read Fourth Wing. Um, and a bunch of people were drawing Zayden as white. And the author came out and she said, no, he's a person of color. And people have gone back and looked at the book and they're like, well, you, you describe him as tawny. You describe him as tan. You know, that's ambiguous. So if you're going to have a person of color be your love interest, don't be ambiguous. She at least went and said, no, 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 I don't accept. I don't. This fine art isn't accurate. He's a person of color. But they're like, still, don't don't be ambiguous with your wording. Go and do the research as to how to accurately write those descriptors if you don't know how. Perfect your your craft. Um, and I think that's the same thing with the, the LGBTQ plus community. You know, you might be part of the queer community. There are obviously always going to be elements that you don't understand. So do the research. Learn about that community so that you're accurately representing them if you're using those characters. So that, that's my... I guess my soapbox, I'm stepping down now. <laughs> Amber, you never step off the soapbox. I try. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, you keep us all honest. I try. So, any other thoughts, things you guys wanted to discuss? How do you feel about this first book topic? Was it fun, interesting? And it was mostly me talking. I mean... Was it ever going to be otherwise? I mean, we have some <laughs> other topics coming up that you guys might have more more things on, which, in fact, I need to pull that up so I can... You don't need to do that right now. I don't want to open the Alexa app and try again. Too late. It's already started. Yeah. Down the road. <laughs> Anyways, actually, interestingly <laughs> enough, we kind of started on it this this discussion which was not my intent um our next one is we're going to be discussing the importance of diversity in books so we'll get to revisit that a little bit um go into it a little bit more but that's i believe is our next topic unless you guys come up with something else that you want me to discuss um that's our next book topic topic but that's going to be looking more at like because that's partnering with our around the world thing is like, how do you find diverse picks? What counts as diverse picks? You know, why should you do it? Um, not so much who has the right to write things. Okay. All right, cool. 
on that note, our intro and outro music is by Grant Newman and it's called The Battle of the Nile from Epidemic Sound. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to Bookpile Banter on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, or whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you on any of our social media platforms, such as Instagram or TikTok. You can find us at book underscore pile underscore banter. You can also support us on bookshop.org. Our link is available via our social media. You can email us at bookpilebanter at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.